Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. Good evening. We begin the readout tonight with the battle for control of the House and Senate that, believe it or not, is still not over. But first, happy Veterans Day to the millions of U.S. veterans and their families, those who fought so hard and sacrificed so much to protect our freedom and democracy. On this day, let's also not forget the Republican senators who overwhelmingly voted against a bill that would have aided veterans impacted by burn pits and other toxic chemicals and who celebrated blocking the bill by fist bumping on the Senate floor earlier this year. Is that you, Ted Cruz? The same Ted Cruz who today took a moment on musky mess Twitter to thank those who served. We see you, Rafael. And it's not really a digression because fighting for freedom also occurs at the ballot box by voting in decisive elections that will determine who controls Congress. As of this hour, control of the Senate now depends on three states. The Georgia Senate race will go to a runoff in December after neither candidate won 50 percent of the vote. And all eyes are on Arizona and Nevada, where the still to be called Senate races will determine which party controls the chamber. In Arizona, Democratic incumbent Mark Kelly leads Trump-Thiel merger candidate Blake Masters by more than five percentage points, with 80 percent of the vote counted. In Nevada, Democratic Senator Catherine Cortez Masto is getting closer to Republican Adam Laxalt. As for the House, there are a handful of seats left undecided, including Lauren Boebert's in Colorado. She remains in a tight race against Democrat Adam Frisch. The balance of power in Congress has yet to be decided, but what we are on the verge of potentially seeing is Biden and his Democrats making history with a first term president's party either retaining the House or keeping losses to a bare minimum. Now, just for context, Bill Clinton's Democrats lost 54 House seats in 1994. Barack Obama's Democrats lost 63 House seats in 2010 and Donald Trump's Republicans lost 40 seats in the House in 2018. On average, since 1934, the president's party loses four Senate seats and 28 House seats in the midterm elections. And remember, remember all that fake outrage by the Republicans over inflation, inflation, inflation? The New York Times reports that only three times since the first congressional elections after World War II has inflation been as high as it was heading into a national vote in 1974, 1978, and in 1980. And in all three of those cases, the party of the incumbent president lost between 15 and 48 seats in the House. Biden is poised to have the best midterms of any president in 20 years. But even as we wait for the numbers to tell the full story, Trump diehards are facing the unnerving political reality that MAGA has crumbled including his ever-faithful sidekick, Lindsey Graham, who, remember this, he tweeted in 2016, if we nominate Trump, we will get destroyed and we will deserve it. No truer words. Republicans are reaping the consequences of taking the knee to the man who couldn't make casinos work in New Jersey. As Trump rages over the red tinkle, 
Trump, it turns out, was their undoing. His big lie and his boosting of election denying candidates who sought to eradicate voting rights was their problem. But it wasn't just Trump. The midterm election results are a striking rebuke of the Supreme Court for ending the constitutional right to an abortion. The flurry of post row victories only proves it. Only in, even in ruby red Kentucky. Because here's the thing. Democracy matters to American voters. Women's rights and freedom matter. And yet, the foot soldiers of real-life Gilead still haven't received the memo, with Justice Samuel Alito receiving a standing ovation at the Federalist Society Gala on Thursday night by conservatives applauding his decision as if it didn't just wreck the midterms. It's as if they simply don't have a clue about most of America and are completely in their right-wing religious extremist bubble and totally out of touch with this country, which turned out to actually be a good thing for democracy. And joining me now is Steve Kornacki at the big board. And I want you to go straight to the two places you know I'm going to ask you to go, Nevada and Arizona. Do we have numbers? Literally, in the last 10 seconds, we just got new numbers. So if you give me a second, I'm staring at the uh, Clark County Board of Elections website here, and I'm going to tell you exactly what we just got out of Clark County in Nevada. Uh, Catherine Cortez Masto uh, just picked up. I'll write up. Let's put it up on the board here. Let's see if it's in. Uh, These are the new numbers from Clark County. So let's tell you what literally just happened. This is the biggest county in Nevada. 70% of the vote from Nevada is is from Clark County. So Catherine Cortez Masto, in this new batch that we just picked up, got 17,150 additional votes. That new number, this is her uh, her total in Clark County. And her uh, Republican opponent, Adam Laxalt, just picked up. Let me... See it here. Eight thousand. Let's see here. About nine thousand votes. Yeah, this is a. It's about 17,000 to 9,000. Okay. That's what just came out of Clark County. So again, this continues that trend. These are ballots um, that were dropped off in drop boxes by voters on election day. Um, we knew that uh, this is, I'm trying to think uh, with the press conference, I think this is a little bit more, in fact, than uh, officials in Clark County indicated would be coming out. I think at their press conference today, they suggested about 25, about 15,000 votes would be released tonight. This is 26,000 coming out of Clark County. So this is more than we were expecting. And Cortez Masto picks up 8,000 votes. So what that does to the statewide tally. Yeah, it almost erases Adam Laxalt's lead statewide. Look at that. It's down to just 798 votes, one-tenth of one point. Wow. And I think it's very significant because, again, uh, two things are very significant about what we just got at Clark County. Number one is just the fact that Cortez Masto is winning the ballots by the margin that she won them by, because that's one of the questions there. That's almost two to one. She's getting more than 60 percent of that new vote that just dropped. We've been saying she needs to be in the high 50s, 60, over 60 of the votes coming out of Clark County to be on pace to catch Laxalt statewide. 
There was some question about these ballots dropped off in drop boxes on Election Day, if they might be a little bit less Democratic friendly, a little bit more Republican friendly than the more recent updates that we've been getting out of Clark County. This tells us they're just as Democratic, at least so far. That batch that we just got is as Democratic as the votes we've been seeing from Clark County over the last couple of nights. So that's significant because it means Cortez is still getting votes at a clip that she needs to get them at to catch Laxalt. And the second thing that's significant is Clark County officials told us today that there were 50,000 ballots left to be counted in Clark County. That's half of them. In other words, that's basically half right there. you got another batch of 24,000 still to come. And if they look just like that, she would pick up another, she would net another 8,000 votes. So again, you go back to that statewide margin. It was sitting at just under 9,000 before we got that update from Clark. That update just came in. It brings her within seven, it brings her to 798 votes behind. As I say, there are, according to Clark officials, they said 50,000 earlier today. That is, you know, 24, a 26 that we just got. So there should be about 24,000 left. If Masto continues to win them at the pace she just won that last batch by, she's going to pull ahead there. She would pull ahead there by about 7,000 votes and change. And on top of that, we have coming in this Clark update, I should tell you, came a little bit earlier. And by a little, I mean a lot earlier than officials were suggesting it would come. So it kind of caught me off guard as you were throwing to me here. But we also have been told there are indications from Washoe County where Reno is that around 11 p.m. Eastern tonight, 20,000 more votes are going to be released from there. And again, the same thing obtains. If these are from Reno, from Washoe County later on tonight, if those continue to be Democratic friendly, and last night's batch there was for Cortez Masto, that is another big batch of votes where she could gain further ground. So we're in a situation where that is probably based on the way they've been doing things, although I'll, I'll look into this as soon as I get off the air here, that's probably the lone batch from Clark County tonight. That's more than we were expecting to come out of Clark County tonight. And we are, as I said, expecting later tonight, 20,000 to come out of Washoe County. Last night, we had a big batch come from Washoe County and Cortez Masto was getting 61% of them. If she's getting anything like that tonight, then she will move into the lead. She'll move into the lead statewide by several thousand votes. And then what you would have, as I said, is another 24,000 to come from Clark, where every indication is Masto is going to do very well, because again, she just, she continued in that last batch to get a very high percentage of the vote. And then you also have on top of that, probably 7,000, about 7,000 or so provisional ballots in Clark County. Those would be counted next week. We expect those to be Democratic friendly as well. And then there's also a certain number. Uh, I, I think it's about 9,000 or so ballots that may need to be cured. In other words, there was some, they were mailed in. There's a signature verification issue. County officials are reaching out to encouraging voters to come back in, verify identity, get the ballot counted. It's another potential pool of votes yeah. there. But I, I think this is a very big development because there's, there are some votes left in the, the red rural areas of Nevada. There are some left. But if Masto builds a lead here, you know, again, if she moves this thing up, to 8,000, 10,000 plus, I don't think there are enough votes in the rural area for Laxalt to overcome that. Yeah. So I think that was a very significant development that literally just happened in the last few minutes. And again, she's now within 798. 
She has the opportunity to take the lead statewide with what we expect to be a release of votes from Washoe County later tonight. And the significance of this is that if Masto does, in fact, catch Laxalt and win this race, all Democrats would then need is for Mark Kelly, currently leading by five and a half points and 115,000 votes, to hold on and win this Arizona Senate race, and Democrats would have their Senate majority. And at 10 p.m. tonight, we are expecting 80,000 votes to be released from Maricopa County. And critically, those 80,000 votes we're expecting at uh, 10 p.m. Eastern tonight from Maricopa will, for the first time, include something we have been hyping for the last couple of days, Mm -hmm. and that is the same-day drop-off, the ballots that were dropped off in person on Election Day. And Republicans believe they're they're banking on that being a hugely Republican vote. We're going to find out, I think, potentially tonight at 10 p.m., if those votes are Republican enough for Masters to have any chance of catching Kelly. So that could be an extremely significant update at 10 p.m. tonight. And as I said, 10 p.m. tonight that and we're expecting around 11 to hear from Washoe County. It is possible, in other words, that by 11 o'clock tonight, Democrats will have the lead statewide in Nevada. And you will see results coming out of Maricopa County that indicate Blake Masters has an almost impossible task of catching Mark Kelly. It's possible that's what we could be in the next few hours. Uh, Look look at how how things change when you start counting more votes. Uh, Steve Kornacki, uh, the best in the business. Thank you very much. I appreciate you. Let's bring in Tom Nichols, staff writer for The Atlantic, where he writes The Atlantic Daily and uh, Peacefield newsletters. And Victor Xi, co-host of the iGen Politics podcast and a 2020 Biden delegate. I I do want to start with you on what you just heard, Tom Nichols, because here is where we start to look at opportunity costs. In the state of Arizona, 78 percent of the people who voted voted early by mail. That's the way most people voted. Twenty two percent of people voted on Election Day, which means that Republicans made an affirmative choice because Donald Trump told them to to give up the idea of voting by mail, to make it an anathema to their voters and to have to rely and put it all on voting the day of the election. Which means that just for me, the way that campaigns look at this in general is you can assume that the votes that come in late, that the votes that are counted after Election Day, that the absentee votes, that the cured, the votes that need to be cured, that the votes that are provisional are going to lean Democratic. It's just a logical assumption because they created this reality. What do you make of this? Because they seem to be being hoist on their own petard here. Well, one thing that's clear is that this is what happens when somebody like Donald Trump doesn't understand anything about elections or how they work. And he just kind of goes with what um, repeats it at rallies and um, make that kind of wisdom. Among Wait, on, his your audio is given, we're given, we're getting some trouble with your audio. So let's give, let, let's try to fix uh, Tom, uh, Tom's audio because I want to be able to hear what he's saying. So let's hold on real quick. Let me play for you guys while we're trying to work on that audio. This is the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors chair because uh, Carrie Lake has been making a lot of inflammatory claims about the amount of time that it's taking to count in, the, in, in Arizona. So we talked about Nevada earlier, but now we're talking Arizona again. And here she had said some pretty uh, bizarre things, which is kind of what she does. And this was the response of the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors about how long it's taking to count the votes. 
to see, you know, national networks out there and their hosts saying, not being truthful about why it's taking this period of time. That's frustrating to these people back here who are doing an incredible job working through Veterans Day weekend and then to have that spread out there nationally to raise quite, you know what, yeah, I'm going to stand up for my state. I am going to stand up for my state. Maybe not everyone here is, but I am. We're doing things the right way. And I appreciate that you're all here, but we're not doing anything wrong at all. And that someone from here would suggest that we are doing something wrong, that's frustrating. All right, and we're going to come back to Tom in a minute. We're still working on his audio, but I want to bring in Victor Shee here because I think there are two buckets of information that are important about these elections. One of them is that Republicans, there was an opportunity cost to taking the knee to Donald Trump and doing whatever he says. He doesn't know anything about politics, right? He lucked into the presidency because he was famous. But the second thing is that I think it's not just Trump. And that I think that with all of the young voters, these numbers, this is a four for my, uh, my, my director here, 6335 was the break of 18 to 29 year old voters. It was catastrophic for Republicans. Even 30 to 44 year old voters went 5147. So they were really counting only on voters over 45. And so it's not just the fact that they are telling people not to use drop boxes and not to vote by mail, but they're also telling voters that the most important thing is to be mean to trans kids and not let them play sports. The most important thing is to rip the right uh, to get contraception and abortion away from women and that the and that owning the libs is actually the most important thing. Clearly, that didn't work with young voters. Clearly, it didn't. You're exactly right, Joy. And I just want to, first of all, address uh, the video that we just saw. I mean, I think it's becoming increasingly clear from the Republican Party that they have no respect for democracy at all. For these poll workers who sacrifice so much to do what they do to protect and defend democracy, they should be singing all our praises. We should be commending them on all levels. But Republicans are denigrating them. And it's really sad to see. On the young voter front, I think it's particularly interesting. And we were talking about Nevada before. Um, One of the things that I'm paying close attention to is going to be that vote among young people in Nevada. Uh, Some of the early voting and mail-in ballot data so far suggests that uh, over two-thirds of young people chose Democrats uh, in the early vote and mail-in ballot uh, category. Exit polling also suggests that. And so I think that no matter what happens, if Democrats win Nevada and Arizona uh, in particular, uh, I think it's going to be key because of young people and and the way that we turned out to vote. And just like you said, this election was an election that we saw historic uh, number of young people go out there and make their voices heard because we saw this Republican Party that was willing to do everything it would do to basically denigrate our lives and identities, starting with abortion, going all the way forward with things like don't say gay bills, restricting what can be taught in the classrooms. And so I think this election was really, really important for how young people showed up in the ballot boxes. Yeah. And I think we've got your audio fixed, Tom. I want to let you finish your thought. But I mean, this is an election that Republicans told us was about inflation. But then they their their rhetoric was all about what you just heard Victor talk about. Right. It was about critical race theory and, you know, trans kids. So it's like they weren't even talking about solutions to the thing they said was the most important. It was just insult comedy. And then it turns out that young voters were like not interested in insult comedy. And Trump, who they're still bowing down to, has spent the last couple of days insulting people, including Asian Americans, by trying to take a shot at Glenn Youngkin. That's what he still thinks that they should do. Your thoughts? None of the Republicans were running on the the issue that they were trying to bait the Democrats into running on. What they wanted was for the Democrats to get out and 
preemptively apologize for the economy and for gas prices and for inflation, when in fact the Republicans were running on, um, we intend to take power so that there are never free elections again, um, particularly in 2024. And I think it's really heartening, despite um, so many pundits who told Joe Joe Biden take that bait and told Democrats take that bait. Um, and I'm happy to say I was not one of them. Um, but, the, you know, the president, I, I think, you know, the guy's been in politics a long, a long time. He knew the voters yeah. better than anybody else and made that close argument to say this is about democracy. And one of the things that I think is really important to note in all this when all the numbers are flying around in Arizona, the biggest vote uh, for a Democrat was for the secretary of state. Yes. And it's interesting to see that voters have taken seriously that secretaries yep. of state. State legislatures. I mean, they flipped the, the House of Representatives in Pennsylvania. Yeah, that's a big deal. And it shows you that voters were paying attention, that American voters, God bless them, because you know, I was starting I was starting to lose my faith. I was <laughs> I admit it. You know, I was having those dark moments. Um, but I think, you know, American voters said, yeah, it, inflation sucks. Yeah, gas is expensive. But but I am not yeah. going to overthrow constitutional order yeah. uh, just because gas is expensive. And you're seeing that all across the country with secretaries of state, legislative uh, elections and so on. Yep. No, I mean, American voters are pretty smart. They understand inflation is a global issue and having Hunter Biden hearings and owning the libs ain't going to do nothing about it. Uh, and by the way, young voters, and we're going to have you guys both back on, but Victor Xi, warn all your fellow young voters that now that they've seen these numbers, they're going to come after every way young people vote. The next thing they're going to try to do, because they went after the ways that black people vote, early voting, et cetera, they're coming for every way that young people vote because they know young people ain't with them. Watch this space, as oh, the great Rachel Maddow would say. Thank you, Tom Nichols and Victor Xi. Up next on The Readout, the road ahead for Democrats after their triumph in midterm elections. And Lindsey Graham gets all misty-eyed as he defends his new friend, Herschel Walker. The Readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. This week's midterm elections are far from over, with the possibility that the Democrats could break all precedent and not only hold both chambers of Congress, but even add a seat in the Senate. And while we await the final results, no one can dispute that the Democrats overperformed expectations, turning the so-called red wave that Republicans and some in media promised MAGA voters into more of a red wheeze. Here to discuss how they how they pulled it off and what it means for the party's strategy moving forward is the chair of the Democratic National Committee, Jamie Harrison. I'm going to give you 30 seconds to brag. What did y'all do right? 
<laughs> well, Joy, part of, it is a, part of it is a return to the 57 state and territory strategy. You know, the DNC put $90 million on the ground in our coordinated campaigns across the country. And uh, in the end, I think that paid dividends because we were able to put the boots on the ground to win these very, very close races. And just to give you the, the uh, to, to understand the context, in 2018, we put $30 million on the ground. So $90 million this cycle. And we were able to do that because of President Biden and his commitment and Vice President Harris and their commitment to making sure that we had the resources uh, to invest in these races across the country. Okay, so now I, you know I have you know you know I love you, man. But we got we got to counter just one thing because this is the question I have. Because when I saw how successful the Fetterman campaign was, the Shapiro campaign was, there were some really great campaigns on the ground, and the momentum Democrats clearly had, which we've been talking about on this show since Roe since Roe was overturned, which should have made this a much more open environment for Democrats. There were a couple questions I have for you in terms of the outreach strategy, yeah. Ron Johnson still beat Mandela Barnes. And Mandela Barnes is a statewide elected official. That was a 1% margin. North Carolina, Sherry Beasley, that was a winnable race, 3.6%. The J.D. Vance, Tim Ryan race might have been a little bit tougher climb, but that was also a winnable race. What I heard back from folks who were on the ground in those states and from Florida was that there was, yes, there was money on the ground. And I'm not saying the DNC was, was responsible for it, but that there was not enough money invested in turning out black voters, especially in Wisconsin, where there seemed to not be a lot of movement among African-Americans and in North Carolina and in Florida and definitely in the in the Ohio race. Was this a miss not getting enough money on the ground, as you said, was important and not just by your group, but by the DSCC and others to get black voters specifically out? Well, Joy, I push back on that because also in Wisconsin, you know, we did pick up the governor's, uh, we kept the governor's mansion in Wisconsin. Also with the attorney general's uh, race in Wisconsin as well. Part of, And then we picked up some congressional races in places like North Carolina. Part of the problem that we had in this election was the amount of dark money that flowed into these campaigns on the Republican side that just overwhelmed our candidates. You know, Mandela, Sherry, who I worked very closely with both of them, uh, you know, early on in these races, uh, they outraised their Republican opponents. Uh, We had more money on the ground than the Republican opponents. But there was so much money by billionaires on the Republican side that flooded the zone in terms of TV ads and all. And it drove up the negatives of many of our candidates. And so we have to figure that out. And that's part of the reason why we got to get the John Lewis voting rights bill done to get this dark money out of politics, because it really overwhelmed uh, many of our candidates. And we're probably going to see that same type of dynamic happen in in the runoff in Georgia. But we're going to fight back against it because we're going to have a tight ground game. You get a real quick response. Here is your fellow South Carolinian, Lindsey Graham, talking about you, you mentioned Georgia. Here's Lindsey Graham. They're trying to destroy Herschel to deter young men and women of color from being Republicans. If they destroy Herschel, it will deter people of color from wanting to be a conservative Republican because you just have your life ruined. We cannot let that happen. You look near tears. Your thoughts? <laughs> uh, it, it's, it's really kind of ironic when he ran against a young African-American man and darkened my skin and ads and everything else. Listen, Lindsey Graham is a bit unhinged. Uh, and he's part of the extreme MAGA Republicans that we see right now that, that you know, that are making people lose faith in, in this process. 
Uh, I wish Lindsey would go back to the old Lindsey Graham. But this is what we see. This is what we see with Donald Trump and what we will see. And these candidates all lost with this extremism. Right now, the American people want folks who are going to fight for them, who's going to help them and their families and their communities. That's not the that's not what the Republicans are giving them. That's yeah. what the Democrats are doing right now. All right. Uh Jamie Harrison, chairman of the DN, head of the DNC. Thank you very much. Really appreciate you coming up on the readout. Thank you, Joe. Cheers. Why was the Republican red wave narrative so completely wrong? And why did so many in media believe it? We'll discuss right after the break. Hey, everyone, it's Chris Hayes. This week on my podcast, Why Is This Happening? We're back with another installment of our special series with Pod 2024, The Stakes. I'm talking to experts about both Joe Biden and Donald Trump's records on specific policy areas during their time as president. This week, a biggie. AbortionEveryday.com founder Jess Valenti on the stakes of reproductive rights. Conservatives, Republicans would like us to believe that this is something that voters are sort of super polarized on, that we're evenly split down the middle. And that's just not true. Voters want abortion to be legal, even in red states, even in purple states. That's why we're seeing attacks on democracy. That's this week on Why Is This Happening? Search for Why Is This Happening wherever you're listening right now and follow. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. Now, one thing we can say for certain about the midterm elections, that this narrative, the one about a red wave or a red tsunami, completely fell apart. Now, I'm not one to say I told you so, but okay, we kind of did tell you so. (laughs) At least we tried to. But of course, it wasn't just the mainstream media buying the line from Republicans and their pollsters. It was unsurprisingly in heavy rotation in the right wing echo chambers on Fox News and social media because Republican political operatives put it there. Are we looking at one of the biggest red waves in American history? Red wave rising. We could see things happen in America we haven't seen in decades with a historic red wave. Your predictions of a red wave are accurate. I think the red wave that's coming is going to be like the elevator doors opening up in The Shining. You are about to see a red wave that makes day after tomorrow look like nothing. Remember that Taya Leone deep impact disaster movie? That's the red wave tsunami that'll come ashore. Is it gonna be a red wave? Is it gonna be a red tsunami? I think it's gonna be a red hurricane. What are you feeling today? I'm feeling red wave. If there's not a red wave, I'll dance. How about that? It's a red tornado tsunami. Joining me now, Simon Rosenberg, Democratic strategist and president of the New Democrat Network, and Fernanda Mondi, Democratic pollster, strategist, and MSNBC political analyst. Simon, I'm going to throw it to you to go ahead and say I told you so. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, what we've been writing over the, <laughs> what we've been writing over the last few months was that maybe the red wave is coming, but it's not here yet. I mean, we didn't see it in the House specials in the spring and summer. We didn't. I mean, in the summer and fall, we didn't see it in Kansas. We didn't see it. In the voter reg numbers. We didn't see it in candidate fundraising. We didn't see it in the early vote. And so this notion, I think what happened is the buy-in on the red wave obscured for many commentators what was really happening in the election is that we were the motivated party. We were the ones that were bringing it again and again and again. The Republicans were struggling. And I've now become pretty convinced that one of the reasons the Republicans pushed this so hard is they knew underneath that they were not doing nearly as well as they thought. And they tried to, you know, BS their way, you know, through all this, right? Which is part of what happens in a party of the big lie. 
Yeah. And, and Fernand, I'm going to put up you, what you were tweeting earlier today. You know, that you said the most unreported, underreported story is that Democrats had a four million vote lead over Republicans in, in early vote. That was something you put up before. And I mean, I think that was the thing, right, is that the you're a data guy. The data did not match the storyline. That's what was off key for me the whole time. You know, it didn't, Joy. And Simon is exactly right. He and I together were looking at polling in the summer. We saw first the phenomenon of the decoupling, which Simon uh, accurately called out and said, look, Biden's approval rating wasn't impacting how support for Democratic candidates were. And then with the early vote numbers, I mean, it was crystal clear. And you heard Simon say it earlier. Not only were the Democrats not facing a red wave, their amount of support was growing. So, Joy, I think what you have to look at here is this was a deliberate effort to gaslight America on this phenomenon of the red wave, the red hurricane, the red apocalypse, whatever red storyline was out there. But when you think about the fact that this election is actually going to come down to maybe only a couple seats control the House, that could very well have impacted Democrats controlling the House had the media and many, unfortunately, in my profession, whether wittingly or unwittingly, bought into that operation to, to gaslight America. So I think there's some questions going forward and for 24 that that don't happen again. And that's the reason we're doing this segment, honestly, Simon, because, you know, we we, ha- we do this every two years. But next one is the big one. This is the presidential election in which you have now election deniers. This is they have a game plan of the way they want to take the next election, regardless of the vote. And you had these polling averages that had things like Trafalgar and all these other Republican pollsters in them. And you talked about how the, there was just a big disconnect between what they said was going to happen. Look at that. R2 plus nine um, for real clear politics. R0.8 for 538, but it actually turned out to be more accurately Democrats 0.4, plus 0.4. Yeah, look, the, the truth is, in the last few weeks, not only was the early vote kind of incredible for us and showing incredible intensity and Republicans struggling, the nonpartisan polls were also really good for us and had us up in places like Arizona, Georgia, and Pennsylvania, and also had us uh, in the last week, the polling averages had us up by 1.4% in the nonpartisan polls. And yet all the stories were red wave. And meanwhile, like we're up in the national polls, we're up in the key states where you couldn't find the red wave in those polls, you couldn't find it in the early vote. And what I, I think, it, I, to me, part of of the reason I think Republicans pushed this so hard is because the reality that Democrats could do really well in this election because of abortion was just something they couldn't handle. It's just something that for a party that it's driven for 50 years to finally have you know, gotten rid of Roe, for there to have been this popular uprising that came from what they did, they had to create some other set of stories that obscured what was really happening, which was that there was an uprising against their extremism. And so they created, in part, you know, the red wave narrative, which sort of said, well, it wasn't Democrats who are intense, it's Republicans are. It's not women who care about abortion, they care about inflation, right? There was this unbelievable effort to gaslight about what was really happening in the election. And it's true that I think the disappointing part of this is that so many people, credible, serious people in the media, fell for it. And we didn't see it in the data, and that's why we continue to challenge it up all the way up to Election Day. And remember, Joy, we're now three days after the election, and the red wave still hasn't come. 
It still hasn't come. I mean, look, it, it, to the point where you had Tom Bevan from Real Clear Politics, like trying to mock Simon and me, saying we were selling hopium. No, the hopium, it seems to me, Fernand, was that they hoped women would get over losing their bodily autonomy. Yeah. Like the idea yeah. that you could strip half of the population of their fundamental rights to own themselves and say they'll get over it because the price of milk is high, to me, seemed absurd always. Yeah, no, the hopium was the idea that abortion had faded as an issue, right, in the weeks before the election. And, you know, the price of gas trumped control over the, a woman's body, as you said. But look, Joy, I think I want to make sure America understands and, and credit to you and Simon and NBC, by the way, NBC uh, was very accurate. The NBC poll all the way to the end was on the money, yeah. as Simon said correctly. And he's always maintained those independent polls had it right. It is important that we don't allow this gaslighting to happen again in the future. Absolutely. And I'll give Tom Bond your credit because he was also another person that was saying abortion is the issue. And I believe the data guys like my guys here that are on the on the uh, TV with me, Simon Rosenberg and Fernanda Mondi. This is who I call when I want to know what's going to happen up next. The much anticipated Black Panther Wakanda Forever opens in movie theaters today. I recently had a chance to speak with Queen Ramonda herself, the amazing, gorgeous Angela Bassett about the movie and the loss of the late, great Chadwick Boseman. You do not want to miss it. It's next. Black Panther Wakanda Forever will premiere with one glaring absence. Chadwick Boseman, who portrayed T'Challa, king and protector of Wakanda in the original Black Panther film, died in 2020 after a private battle with colon cancer. Ryan Coogler's Marvel sequel is a tribute to Bozeman and the continuation of his legacy. As Queen Ramonda and fellow Wakandans fight to protect their nation from intervening world powers in the wake of King T'Challa's death. Actress Angela Bassett reprises her role as Wakanda's queen mother. There was another attack on one of our outreach facilities. Proof of the involvement of a member state is being uploaded to your mobile devices as we speak. And as for the identity of the attackers... Ooh, we ready. Long live Wakanda. Joining me now is the one and only gorgeous, incredible, regal Angela Bassett, who plays Queen Ramonda in Wakanda Forever. Oh, it's so wonderful to talk with you. Um, I don't even know where to begin. (laughs) <laughs> Thank you. I'm so excited about this film. I know everyone is so excited about it from the soundtrack dropped by Rihanna to seeing you in that gorgeous regal outfit. Um, but I think we're all prepared to go in there and cry a lot um, because of the absence that's so glaring in this film. I just want you to talk for a moment about doing this film um, and doing it with that loss um, that you all had to endure. Oh, yes. Um, absolutely. You know, we we all have such a deep love and respect for Chadwick and for what he meant to us individually, what he meant to this film. Um, 
what, you know, the way he led us and shepherded us. Um, and that's the love and respect and energy um, that we brought to to Wakanda forever. So the the uh, the, um, you know, the loss was monumental. And every day on the set, you know, there were tears all over the place <laughs> to watch yourself and keep from slipping. You know, there were so many tears, but we had each other. And uh, we gathered together before we even began to shoot the first frame to just remember him, recall his brilliance and his love and his tenacity. And uh, we uh, pay homage to him on screen in such a beautiful and respectful and incredible way. I'm very proud of that, very proud of of the heart, the soul of um, and, and the caring of the filmmakers led by Ryan Coogler. And we just behind that man were stands us strong women. And we we carry we drive this film. We carry it. And um, it's it's exhilarating. And, you know, that is one of the most beautiful things um, about the first film and what emerged from it. Just watching those of you who were in the film interact with each other. You were clearly a family, um, which was one of the most beautiful things about it. But, yes, what you just said is the next thing I want to talk to you about, because this is a genre, a, a sort of theme of empowerment of women. And the women in Wakanda are the warriors. The women are the heart and soul of the kingdom. And so I am just excited to see what is the evolution of the women of Wakanda? What are we going to see from them in this film? Well, the, the loss of King and son is, is, is there, you know, we meet it head on at the very beginning and the women, you know, Ramonda has to step in as mother to Shuri in, in wake of the great loss of her brother. She has to step up to protect and secure the nation and the loss of the King and also to just shore up the hearts and uh, and souls of, of the people. And we have to carry on. We have to carry on anyway. Uh, Shuri, I mean, she suffered. They were, they're, you know, she and her brother, extremely close. She and Chadwick, extremely close. But you have to, I guess, meet this grief and find a way to process it. So we see that happening uh, with the character. Um, the general Okoye, you know, she fought by his side and for him and, you know, and their, their charming banter between one another. Uh, so it's a, even though she's warrior, she's a warrior with a big heart and, and we sense her loss. And what does his love, the love of his life and how, how she manages that. Uh, so in, in a, in a different way. So we all have our different ways of, of, of dealing with it, but we're, we are there in time of need. We need be for each other. And, and you know, this film uh, is coming out at a time that's really difficult in this country, to say the least, um, to say the least, and difficult in many ways, particularly for women, um, with the loss of so many of our fundamental rights, um, particularly for people of color, um, who I think feel really um, sort of targeted. Um, by the politics that we're seeing coming out of one side of our political spectrum. I want to show you really quickly something that you said. Um, this was at the Glamour Women of the Year Awards, where you received a Lifetime Achievement Award. I just want to play you for you. This is what you said when you received your award. We are courageous, like Mamie Till. We are 
underestimated, <laughs> like Rosa Parks. We are fearless, like Bessie Coleman. We are resilient, like Tina Turner. The legacies of these women and so many more are what keep me going. Okay, I'm going to resist the urge to comment on that fabulous, gorgeous dress and just ask you, <laughs> give us some, we, we need some encouragement uh, from the Queen Mother. Give us some encouragement. What keeps you grounded and centered at times when I think a lot of women do feel like their strength is faltering? What keeps you going? You just mentioned your heroes, but what else can you give us? Just a, a, a word. We need a word from you. Oh, Lord, joy <laughs> will absolutely be a person of faith. You know, I look to the hills from which cometh my strength, you know. Um, so that's first and for foremost. And I look to my, to the side, to each side, to in front of me and, and uh, to the strength of women who are whose feet on the ground, just like mine, who do not, you know, walk on air, but who have struggles we all do, and that's and that is what make makes us richer, um, and and more complex, and gives us strength. Um, so each of those women that I mention, um, you know, they went through things. They went through things. They gave a lot of themselves for the struggle, and I just don't I don't take um, their sacrifices in vain. And whatever it is you do, you know, wherever it is you are. You can make an impact. You can make a difference, be it big yeah. or be it small. Everything, everything positive pushes it forward. So we need you. We need you. We need you. We need each of us. The great Angela Bassett, Queen Mother Ramonda of Wakanda, Wakanda forever, my sister. Thank you so much for being here. You are brilliant. We love you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Joy. Pleasure to be here. Behold, a real live queen. That is tonight's readout, Wakanda Forever. Go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Visit msnbc.com slash app to download.